Today we're going to begin a two-part study of spiritual warfare since we have this happening here in Mark chapter 1. So uh, turn to Mark chapter 1 and we're going to be in verses 12 and 13 today and we're going to look at, we're going to look at this in two different ways. So this is, the, uh, this is the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and I'm sure to a certain extent we're all familiar with it um, as far as what, what happens when Christ goes in the wilderness. And Satan comes and tempts him with different ways and strategies. And so that the account in depth is not in Mark. It's in Matthew and Luke. And so next week we're going to look at Matthew and Luke as far as what they talk about, as far as what exactly happens to Christ when he is in the, uh, in the wilderness being tempted by, uh, by Satan. And so that will be next week. But this week we're still in Mark and there's still enough here to, act to, to most definitely have a whole sermon just on um, some of this, what we see in verse 12 and 13. So we're going to do that. So we'll split it up in two different ways. Uh, so verse 12 and 13, let's pray and then we'll read those verses. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we do thank you for Christ. We thank you that he is the victor, that he is the one who came and who conquered. And as we just read in the the shorter catechism, the the humiliation of Christ and the suffering of Christ and the trials that Christ went through and the the sufferings, even to the the, the point of suffering on a cross, suffering the wrath of God in our place and for us. Lord, we praise you for this. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to, to better appreciate to better comprehend the magnitude of what Christ has done for our souls and and the sacrifice and the suffering that he went through even before he went to the cross Lord so give us grace to have this insight Lord it can only happen by your Holy Spirit help us now help us in Jesus name amen all right so 12 and 13 immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. So if you look at verse 12, right, the very first word you have is immediately. Okay, now this is interesting because uh, Mark actually uses the word immediately 40 times in the Gospels. All right, so that's, that's one of his favorite words is immediately, and that's kind of what makes Mark so exciting and action-packed, and it's nonstop, and it's always just going, 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 one scene to the next scene. Um, in fact, look at verse 10. Verse 10 starts out the same way. Immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. So here's this really. And we spent a lot of time talking about Christ's baptism. And that's a very profound, phenomenal event. Um, However, Mark basically gives us no time to pause and just reflect on the glories of this baptism. Because right after this baptism, it's boom, immediately after that, now he's in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting here is that not only is he in the wilderness, okay, by the way, where it says immediately the Spirit impelled him. The NASB says impelled. Okay, that's actually, um, I mean, it's not, it's, it's not inaccurate, but there, the, a better word for that would be something like driven, compelled. Okay, so in the Greek, the word there is actually very more forceful than just he was impelled. He, he was driven. He was, he was moved out, okay? And so, um, and I don't know if anyone's translation has that. Anyone's trans? Okay, okay. So we got. Okay, what translation do you have? Okay, what do you have? Oh, you have the Holman. What's it say in there? Drove. Drove. Yeah, that's actually a better translation. So it drove the the, the spirit drove him. Okay. Um, 
And I'm saying that because this is unique for Mark, that word drove. Matthew and, Mark, uh, Mark, Matthew and Luke use a different word. So this is an important thing. So the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. That is very important. Why? Because what happens to Christ in the wilderness is he is going to be tempted by Satan. But who is the one that's leading Christ into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. Okay? And so what this, what this whole thing shows us is this is really insight into everything that Christ is about to do throughout the entire rest of the Gospels. Because this is a window into the real conflict, the real battle. And it's a window into even our own conflicts and our own battles. Because it's easy for us to examine things and interpret things in our life in terms of the flesh, in terms of a naturalistic way, in terms of, a, well, you know, the reason this is happening is because, you know, uh, uh, this happened or that happened or, 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 you know, cause A, cause B. When in reality, everything in our life that's taking place is is happening because behind the scenes there's a spiritual reality that is driving this. So our reality is not just the things of the senses. Reality is behind, beyond the senses, the things of the spirit. There's a, there's a, there's a realm that is, yes, demonic. Um, there's a realm that is, is very much um, where Satan is an aggressor. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind who ultimately... See, there's, there's a thing, um, there's a term called dualism. And this is not what the Bible teaches. So, so, so the idea is, is that Satan is like one power and God over here is another power. And they're at, you know, they're, there's like, they're, they're both, they both have the same amount of power and energy and, 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 and ability and strength. And they're kind of fighting it out. And we're just kind of waiting to see who's actually going to win in the end. Okay. That's not true at all. Cause what you have is in reality, Satan can do nothing apart from God, giving him the ability to do that, giving him the authority to do that. So everything that's happening, what I'm saying this, keep in mind, okay. Cause this should be encouraging. Keep in mind that the spiritual warfare and the conflict that we are going against from the enemy himself is not outside of the realm of God. Okay. Because God is sovereign. But it is to say that we do have a very real enemy, a very real threat, a very... Satan is a person who is prowling about like a roaring lion. And in a minute we'll go through a lot of the verses in Scripture in the New Testament showing um, how Satan is described and talked about. But look at verse, uh, verse 12 first. So immediately the Spirit impels Christ, drives Christ to go out into the wilderness. Now, he, he was already in the wilderness, Remember, John the Baptist was in the wilderness. So Jesus, they're all going out to the wilderness to be baptized. And now he's saying, okay, now that they're in the wilderness, Jesus is baptized. But then immediately the Spirit impels him to go out into the wilderness. You're like, what is that? Well, that means he's going deeper into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness. Now he's in the deepest parts of the wilderness. Okay, now, And this really, um, if you think about it, this was, this was always, the wilderness has always been a proving ground. Think about the days of Moses. Remember, Moses was in the wilderness when God speaks to Moses from the burning bush. Okay, Elijah was in the was in the wilderness all the time. Israel, of course, was in the wilderness. Um, but the wilderness, if you turn to Jeremiah twenty three, verse ten, the wilderness is a place of curse. Usually, in the Old Testament, it's depicted as a place that has been cursed by God. So Jeremiah 23. So what you'll find, especially in the prophets, you'll have a lot of language in the prophets like, you know, um, when, it, when the land is cursed, when the land is dry, when there's drought, when it's, when it's not fertile, that is a good sign that the Lord has cursed that land. 
Whereas if you have a land that's flowing with milk and honey, it's plenteous, it's green, there's rain, it's abundant, that is a land that is blessed by God. Okay, um, so to point this out, look at verse 10, 23, verse 10. For the land is full of adulterers, for the land mourns because of the curse. The pastures of the wilderness have dried up. Their course also is evil, and their might is not right. But the pastures of the wilderness have dried up. There's a little brief little hint at that right there. But you also have it in, in uh, Hosea 4, Malachi 3, Jeremiah 12, so uh, Psalm 107. So you have a lot of different places that have the same idea. So the idea here is that when Christ is going into this wilderness, it is fitting for Him to go into this wilderness. Why? Because in a sense... It's symbolical for, for the land that all of us, for the, for the situation that all of us in life are going to be in in some point at some time or another. As far as this land that is overrun with, with thorns and thistles, spiritually speaking, and that we are going to be tested and at war with the enemy. The enemy is going to be at war with us. Right? Now, also remember verse 13. Okay, so when he goes out into the wilderness, remember verse 13. Okay, he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So, and he was, he was with the wild beasts. Okay, so when we look at Satan, this is the part I want to look at for, for a little while. Okay, if you turn to 1 Corinthians 7. Now bear with me here because we're going to go through some verses in the New Testament that speak of Satan. And I think this is important because frankly, I mean, I don't, I don't know how often we'll do this. Unless we do it, right? So, so 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to go through about six places that the devil is described in detail. Because, let me just say this, you know, sometimes people in the Reformed church, we don't really take much stock in spiritual warfare, right? The devil, because we believe in God's sovereignty, which is true. We're like, yes, God is sovereign, so we don't need to worry about the devil, and that's true to an extent, but on the other hand, it's also wise according to Scripture that we do need to be aware of the devil. We need to be wise about what he's doing. We don't need to be ignorant. We need to recognize this for what it is. We have an enemy that is at war with us, especially the more we try to get closer to God. The more we try to do for, you know, whenever we're drawing close to God or whenever you're a new convert or whenever, or whenever we've had a lot of sicknesses, right? Whenever you're weak, whenever you're sick. Whenever things aren't going your way, whenever you're, you're, you're hard with, with uh, you know, the money's not there. Or sometimes even if the work's not there, right? When you have a lot of time on your hand. I mean, it's crazy. The devil knows us. The devil knows us. And so we have to realize what he's up to in order to defeat this, in order to be prepared to counteract it and to fight against it. And that's what we'll see especially next week when Christ takes a very specific approach. But let's look through here. So 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. And I hope just the totality of all these verses about Satan will just be overwhelming in the sense of it'll help us to realize this is real. Okay, verse 5. This is Paul. And he just kind of offhandedly remarks about Satan here. Verse 5. Stop depriving one another. He's talking about in the context of marriage here. um, Except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, so here he's talking especially in the context of lust. Of adultery, right? So here's he's saying that Satan will tempt you. Why? Because if you lack self-control, that's a prime window for, for Satan to come and try to overthrow over over top topple of topple you. Right? He's going to come after you in whatever areas of weakness that you have. And so Paul here is recognizing, and you notice how offhanded. What's amazing about this is that it's he just kind of subtly mentions Satan. 
And the reason that's important is because he's taking it as a given that Satan is going to do this. He doesn't have to sit here and, 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 and argue it. He says, hey, this is what happens. And he's assuming that the reader, the audience, is going to say, well, of course this is going to happen, right? He doesn't have to have like a whole doctrine about Satan right here. Does that make sense? So he just puts it out there and he says, hey, it's a fact. And we as the readers should know that this is a fact. If you go to the next, uh, go to 2 Corinthians. So we're in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. And this is in the context of of two things, actually. Verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So he's talking here about, remember in the garden, Eve is in the garden. The serpent is another name for, for Satan. You see that especially in Revelation. Okay, so the serpent or Satan deceives Eve by his craftiness. How? Because he deceives her by leading her away from the simplicity and purity of technically the gospel, the things of God. And so he's saying, so in the same way, Paul is concerned that Satan is going to come in and deceive these people's minds by moving them away from the simplicity and the purity of their devotion to Christ. So there's another way. So it's not just lust. It's not just adultery, right? It can be with with doctrine. It can be about your knowledge of the things of God. How often? I mean, I tell you what. It's so often the fact that you'll have people that are walking very good, and then it's almost like they'll watch a YouTube video or something that's just totally wacky but they start going down that that realm and then all of a sudden now they're believing like in in you know like enoch's a real gospel and it's about you know aliens are coming and things like that and that's and i'm not being facetious that really happens and so so just be on guard that satan is going to try to trip you up in every single way you think hey i'm just going to spend i'm just going to watch a couple theological videos on youtube before you know it you know you're, you're watching all kinds of stuff about all kinds of weird weird theological stuff that's, you know, um, a lot of times it's like from the, um, um, who are the, uh, I forget, never mind. But I can't tell you how often that happens, especially with new believers, especially with zealous believers, especially with earnest believers. I had a friend that, that by God's grace, he's converted now and he's walking soundly with the Lord. But when he was first, when I first encountered him, it was at UTEP in El Paso. And he came up to me and I was, I was preaching over there and he came up to me and he, he, he said, uh, he said, hey, because I was preaching on the glory of God. And he said, how do I, how do I live for the glory of God? And so I stand there and I talked to him for about 30 minutes explaining what it is to glorify God and, and just a great conversation. And this kid was young and he was hungry and he was zealous and he was eager and he was teachable, like everything, right? And so I was like, man, this is great. So I gave my email information. I thought, man, this is so good. Well, I'm, what, 30 minutes later, I'm driving out of the parking lot and I'm almost onto the street and I look over and I see this same guy and he's, he's surrounded by three Mormons. And, and I'm like, oh no, you know, so... I'm stopped and I'm looking and, and at the same time I'm like holding up traffic because I'm thinking, man, I gotta like do something here. So I roll down my window and the cars are honking at me already, like, hurry up, man. And I'm like, what do I say? You know, I can't at this point it's like I got like one sentence. And so I call out the only one sentence I could think of. I said, Jose, these guys are a cult. <laughs> and the one of the Mormons looks over and he says, Why do you say that? And I said, do you think you can become a God one day? And he says, well, yeah. And I said, Jose, 
that goes against everything we just talked about. And by then, everybody, so I leave and I'm thinking, man, I'll never, I'll never hear this guy from this guy again, because he was teachable. He was hungry and the Mormons got a hold of him. And you better believe the devil sent these guys to him. And then later on down the road, there was another story about a Hindu guy that would follow us wherever we went. It seemed like on colleges across the country. And then the same Jose who was walking very strong with the Lord, he called me one day and he started asking me a lot of these weird questions. I was like, what is he talking about? Like questions I'd never, he'd never even thought about, right? And I said, Jose, what happened? Like, who are, who are you talking to? And he says, well, there was this guy who came to school today and he handed me a Bhagavad Gita and I started reading it. And I was like, what do he look like? And he starts describing him. And it was the exact same guy that used to follow us. Not, not because I don't think he was like following us in the sense he was checking out where we're going on Facebook or anything because we wouldn't publish that, right? But wherever we were, he would just happen to be there. And then all of a sudden, he's at UTEP and 25,000 students and he happens to land on the one guy. And it rocked him for about six months. It really did. It rocked him. But then by God's grace, he, he, you know, he came back and now he's doing well. But I tell you, that's what he's talking about here. This is a real thing. And the devil knows your weaknesses. And so you have to be careful. With the Word of God, right? This is what we have to be grounded in the simplicity and devotion of Christ. That's what's going to keep us going. All right, so look at Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. Okay, but this is uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Of course, this is a tragic story, right? Okay, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? So they sell their land and then they go to the apostles and say, hey, we sold it for this much. They were lying. They didn't sell it for that much. They were trying to hold back a little for themselves. So they lie and Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, so Satan, who is the great deceiver, will move us to deceive, to lie. Okay, now look at, um, look at John 8.44. John 8.44. Okay, here's Christ. Now he's describing people who are rejecting him as the Messiah and persecuting him. He says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's why earlier we just saw Peter accusing Ananias that that Satan has filled his heart to lie. Why? Because... Satan is the father of lies. Okay, and Christ Himself acknowledges that and recognizes that. So let's do a few more here. Let's turn to um, now. The, let's let's do the actually turn to Second Corinthians two. Second Corinthians two. Like I said, bear with me here. I just think it's so important to to just give a a, a, a good look at all of this. Chapter two, verse ten and eleven. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So it's the same thing, right? So Satan is, what's the word there? Scheme. He's scheming. He's not... You know, Satan is not going to come. It's, it's like somebody said, you know, he doesn't walk around with the, with the horns and the, the tail and the pitchfork. That, that's too obvious. Instead, he, he disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Right? He disguises himself in a way that attracts us and appeals to us so that we're drawn in, and then he pounces. He's a schemer. Okay? Um, and then the, the two prominent ones, let's turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Okay, now this is under the con- this is in the context of uh, a persecution. In fact, this church was being persecuted. Um, not the there is actually the diaspora people that have been kicked out, and they've been persecuted. And uh, Peter here says in verse six, therefore humble humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. And here it is, right here. Look, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to to devour. And Satan is actually, the the word for Satan is adversary. That's, that's, That's literally the word, okay? So he's saying here, your adversary or your Satan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Notice he says it's your enemy. It's Christ's enemy, yes. But you, by virtue of the fact that you're in Christ, he's also your enemy. He's my enemy. And he's not, I mean, he's not like, he's, he's, not a, he's not a lamb. He's not a dove here, right? He's a lion. He's a roaring to see. He's seeking to devour, to pounce. Okay, and then the last one, and I still have a few more, but let's, let's, uh, we'll just do one more. Um, but if you want more, let me know, and I'll give, you, I'll give you the whole list. So Ephesians chapter 6, and this is usually the, the, uh, the chapter people point to when it comes to spiritual warfare. So, so turn to chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 10. We'll read through through 12. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The same thing, right? Now, notice what he says, though, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. To not waver, to not be knocked over, to not be pushed over. To stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And this is what I was saying when we started out. You know, when, you, when, we, when we're going through Mark, and you're seeing Jesus Christ encounter certain people, and encounter certain circumstances, remember, the whole point to, to Christ's life, right, there is, a, there is a scene behind the scene. And that's this scene right here. His struggle, Christ's struggle, when He's on earth, just like our struggle on earth, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against, you know, tyrannical governors, although that is a fact, right? It's not against bad bosses. It's not against unbelieving neighbors. It's not against persecution. It is, but it's not. Does that make sense? It is, but what's going on behind that? The rulers, look at it says, but, the, but again, our struggle is against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that's being manifested on earth through people. So you have to realize, remember in 1 John, it talks about how you're either a child of God. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? You're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Well, if you're in Christ, you're a child of God. If you're not in Christ, you're a child of the devil. What does that mean to be a child of the devil? Most of the people that are children of the devil, not believers, are not going around saying, hey, I worship Satan. They don't say that, right? Most of them aren't going to say that. Most of them are not, are, are not part of the um, um, Satanism or anything like that. So what does that mean? If you turn to Ephesians 2, we're in Ephesians 6. Look at Ephesians 2. Paul tells us. He says in verse 2. Now he's describing Christians who used to be this way. Now they're no longer this way. But he says, look, in which you formerly walked. 
You used to walk in your trespasses and sins according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is, here it is, that is now working in the sons of disobedience. See, the unbelievers have, a evil, they have an evil spirit working in them. A demonic spirit working in them. Now, I'm not saying that every unbeliever is demon-possessed in the capital D, capital P sense, in, in the sense of what we'll see when Christ is going around casting demons out. That's not what I'm saying, right? But I'm saying that they are under the spell and under the, the, the I would say, the enslavement of the devil's power, which is sin, ultimately. Sin, lying, murder. You know, think about abortion. We are talking about abortion earlier, praying to end abortion, right? What, I mean, what is, where does this notion come from? Well, it's death, right? It's murder. So these people are... You, you don't have to be necessarily a, a worshiper of Satan to endorse abortion, but they go hand in hand. You see that? Abortion is Satan's area. Why? Because he is a murderer. And so those who are for that are, in a sense, giving license to murder. I know they come up with all kinds of excuses to deny that, but that's, that's another story. Okay, but look at um, verse 3. says, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So look, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's what they're being driven by. Okay, So when we're looking at our lives, and when we're looking at what happens to Christ whenever He's going through... Um, Israel and doing all these different things, we, we have to keep in mind what's actually happening. When we're looking at our own lives and we're trying to interpret things, we have to keep in mind what is actually happening. Nothing is done without any kind of spiritual catalyst behind it. Period. But we know God is sovereign. That's the, that's the, that's the comfort. Especially as His people. So, if you go back to Mark, now that we've kind of looked at some of these, these, these uh, passages on Satan... We'll look at this. Okay, so here's Christ. He's in the wilderness. He's, he's deeper into the wilderness. And He's being tempted. Now, okay, first of all, He's being tried. He's being proved. He's being tested. Okay, now remember we just read today in Hebrews that Christ was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. And yet He's without sin. Whenever we're tempted, we usually cave or sometimes we cave. A lot of times we cave. Christ never caves, right? He's tempted, he's tried, he's tested, but he never caves. Okay, so, but here's the thing, look at this. So he's tempted for how many days? For 40 days. Now, 40 days, is, of course, is a very important, symbolical number. Um, it's not to say it's not literal, but it does, it does have a lot of meaning here. Um, I would definitely say this is a literal 40 days here that, is, that the Scripture is talking about. But remember, Moses on Sinai, when he goes up in the mountain and he spends time with the Lord there, how many days was he there? 40 days. Okay, Elijah, if you turn to 1 Kings 19, Elijah is in the desert. Now, Elijah keeps popping up all over this first chapter. But Elijah is over here in the desert. 1 Kings, and I think this is actually uh, what the allusion is to, one of the allusions. There's no accident, I'll put it that way. 1 Kings 19, verse 8. Okay, look at uh, uh, Elijah here. Elijah is fleeing from, from Jezebel. Okay, and... So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, talking about the prophets that she had killed, by tomorrow about this time. So he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. So that's not what Christ is doing, right? Christ is not afraid. He's not running for his life. 
Elijah is, okay, but look at this. So Elijah goes into the wilderness, verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I'm not better than my father's. And we see the weakness of Elijah the man here in contrast to the strength of Christ the man who's also God, right? But he's man, like we talked about last week. He's all, Christ is fully, truly man. And we see his strength here in contrast to what Elijah does. But what we do see here is this, okay? So, Elijah lays down in sleep, etc., sleeps. Okay, look at verse 7. The angel of the Lord came again a second time. Excuse me, I'm sorry, look at verse 6. Then Elijah, he wakes up, excuse me, look at verse 5. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Very similar um, to the situation that Christ is in, in a sense, right? Because here Christ, he's in the wilderness just like Elijah, just like Moses was, was with God on the mountain for forty days. So there's, no, there's, there's, there's something here. And here's, here's what's neat. So when Christ... Remember the, um, the transfiguration. Christ goes up on a mountain and He's transfigured before uh, Peter, James, and John. And His clothes become radiant and splendid and dazzling and white. And they can't even look at it, right? Well, who does Christ encounter when He is transfigured? Moses and Elijah. The two men who also were with God for 40 days and Elijah who's in the wilderness for 40 days provided help by the angel just like Christ. Okay, so it's not these these things are not an accident. Mark knows exactly um, the importance of these things when he's writing them. Now remember Mark of course is getting this from Peter. Um, all right, so so he is in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild beasts. Okay, now remember the the thing about the wild beasts. We talked about this when we first started out. The wild beast, this phrase right here is unique to Mark. It's in no other gospel. It's a very in a sense it's kind of odd that it's even here. Because what I mean, wild beast. Where, where does that come from? Does that mean like Christ is out here like, like beating up lions or something, or like lions are trying to like? What does that mean, right? Well, here's what's really probably what what's going on here. We talked about how the Roman Christians were being thrown into the arena, being persecuted and killed by wild beasts, and so this is to encourage the Roman Christians. Now, I have um, wanted to share this from. So, if you ever get a chance to read the early fathers, the church fathers, it's, it's, I, I love it. I mean, these are guys that were disciples of like Peter, disciples of John, disciples of the first apostles. And so, there's a man here named Ignatius. And Ignatius writes this. So, Ignatius is he's, uh, he's bishop. Um, he's basically over the church of Antioch. Remember, that was the church Paul was in, Antioch. So Paul was sent out by the church in Antioch. Well, Ignatius was the bishop. He was over that church a generation after Paul. So right after Paul. Now, Ignatius gets caught by the authorities, and they're sending him to Rome to die. And what what Ignatius writes to to the Romans, interestingly enough, Mark is probably writing this gospel to the Romans. This is what Ignatius says. So this is, uh, this is while he's on his way, and he says this. So he's on his way to the, to, the, to, the, to the arena. He knows he's going to be thrown in with the lions. But check this out. 
He says, I'm writing to all the churches and am insisting to everyone that I die for God of my own free will unless you hinder me. He says, I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. Let me be food for the wild beasts. He uses the phrase wild beasts. Let me be food for the wild beasts through whom I can reach God. I am God's wheat and I am being ground by the teeth of the wild beasts so that I may prove to be pure bread. And then he goes on and on. But he mentions wild beasts several times. Then he says this over here. Um, He says, From Syria all the way to Rome, I am fighting with wild beasts on land and sea by night and day. So now he's using it as a reference, not just for literal wild beasts, but for evil humans, evil people. And I'm saying this because, why is this important? Because Mark, again, Mark is writing this about 40 years before Ignatius, who was in, from the same, from the similar area, going to Rome, just like Mark was in Rome. And he's using this kind of language, wild beasts. So this was common language for the early church when, they can't, when, when they're describing, um, yes, literal wild beasts in the gladiators arena, yes. Or the Colosseum, right? When they're, when they're sewn up in animal skins and the... the the lions and the, the bears, they come and they pounce on them, yes. But it's also language, meaning um, for any kind of evil person, any kind of person that's persecuting them. Paul says something similar where he says, In Ephesus I fought with wild beasts. Not literally. He's talking about people who are persecuting them. So it's not to say that Christ is not out there with the wild beasts. He is, right? That's the point. But it's to say that as a Christian, I'm meant to read this in light of, okay, I can take comfort from the fact that Christ is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan. Lo and behold, I look at my life. I'm tempted by Satan. I look at the things in my life and I know how how easy, how prone I am, just like Elijah, to to be weak and to to grumble and complain, right? And then I look at this Christ and the sturdiness of Christ who's in the same situation I'm in, but He doesn't cave. He withstands the conflict. And He's the one who's giving me... See right here where it says, check this out. So He was with the wild beasts, yes, and the angels were ministering to Him. And the word ministering here is in uh, the Greek tense is called the imperfect tense. That means it's continuous, it's constant, it's all the time. So it's not just like for a certain point. It's not just that one single time that the angels minister to Him. It's the whole time that Jesus is going through this, the angels are ministering to, to Him. Well, what we have is actually one better than that. Now, we do have angels who minister to us in a sense, but ultimately, you know who we have ministering to us when we're in this situation of being tempted, right? It's Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. Christ being tempted in every way that we've been tempted. We have a faithful, sympathetic high priest because he's been in the situation we're in whenever we're up against Satan's temptations. When we're up against our own spiritual warfare. Christ himself already went through that. That was the encouragement that they were meant to glean from this. That they're reading this and they're saying, Christ was in the wilderness. Christ was being tempted by Satan. Christ was with the wild beast, just like we are. Meaning anybody that's persecuting us. Meaning the tyrannical government. Meaning, you know, the tyrannical boss who is coming down on you for being a Christian or whatnot. Whatever that looks like. So that's, that's what, in a sense, we're meant to read this and say, okay, Christ did this. I can take comfort from that. And Christ was being ministered to by angels. We're being ministered to by Christ and angels. We can do this, in other words, right? There's encouragement here. And so that's what this is all about. So, um, and, and being ministered to, by, by the way, I mean, this is, this is also something we just saw this with Elijah. 
where he's sleeping and he's complaining and he's like, man, and isn't that our life, right? Think about Elijah again. So, so you don't have to turn there, but remember Elijah's in the wilderness. He's being chased by, by, uh, by Jezebel and he's thinking, man, can it get any worse? I mean, I'm out of food. I'm, I'm having to run away. I'm in the wilderness. I'm deep out here in the wilderness. And he's complaining. He says, Lord, take my life. It's kind of like Jonah, right? He's like, man, it's not even... I mean, what do I do? And then what does God do? Elijah lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise, eat. Isn't that how God is? You know, I tell you what, you know, like in our lives, here's the thing, as Christians... If if you remember in Hebrews 12, to kind of wrap up here, Hebrews 12 talks about God disciplines the one He loves. But discipline there is not a word that always means you're in trouble and therefore God brings the rod. That's sometimes true. But a lot of times what this is, in fact, I would say the way it usually is meant is that discipline here is more like an athlete who's training for a race. So if you think about what spiritual temptation is, remember who drove Christ into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit did. Who is the one behind our spiritual warfare? God, the Holy Spirit. Why? Not not because God's mean, not because God is against us. Um, although it is like Calvin said, you know, even if, even if we're like, hey, I don't know why this is coming, you know, these conflicts, these trials... These hard times, they come against all of us in some degree or another, right? Well, John Calvin makes the comment, you know, who can say that we don't have any sin that these, that these temptations and trials can help drive out? We all have weaknesses that the Lord is, is, is using these trials to, to drive out, right? These sins, these, these, these temptations, these weaknesses in our life. And so sometimes God most definitely puts us in circumstances to, to kind of to purify that. To weed that out. But we have to remember, look, ultimately, he says this right here in uh, Hebrews 12. And and this is how we'll finish. Um, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he talks about, you know, we had fathers on earth that disciplined us, and we took it, we, we expected it. And they, Well, how much more should we expect and appreciate the discipline that God gives us? He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. Now, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. That's what Mark's doing here. He's strengthening the, 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 the knees that are weak, the people who are about to cave and give in and say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. It's just too much for me. He's saying, look at what Christ, Christ went through this. And Christ is your strength. Christ is your helper. It's going to be fine. He's going to get you through this, but lean on Him. Right? Don't lean on our own, our, on our own strengths. Remember that it's God who is working in us to bring about this, this, this life of holiness, yes. But also, listen, so that we better appreciate the things of Christ. You know, when we go through trials and spiritual warfare, I, I, I don't want to... You know, it's funny because while you're going through it and you're in a really serious situation, you're like, man, I'd love to get out of this. But isn't it true? Every time you look back on it, you're like, man, this is the time when I really got serious. And the rubber met the road. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm clinging to Christ with all I have because I don't have anything else. 
And those turn out to be some of the best, most blissful, sweetest seasons of our, of our Christian pilgrimage. And I think, you know, and, and, and that's, there's so much there. Like I said, we'll do another, uh, we'll look more in depth at what Christ encounters in the wilderness um, next week. But, but uh, be encouraged, you know, be encouraged that Christ has gone through this already. Whatever trials, whatever temptations you're going through. And, and don't be surprised by spiritual trials. Don't be surprised. That's, that's to be expected, right? When you signed up to follow Christ, certainly we know by now we didn't sign up for roses and soft pillows and a bed of ease, right? We know, hey, this is warfare. This is serious. Certainly when we, started, when we planted a church in Clovis, surely by now we realize, hey, this is serious, you know? I mean, if the Lord... Look, man, it's... I don't, you know, whether you attribute COVID to Satan or the Lord, I don't know, maybe both. But look, if he wipes us all out with COVID, man, look, whatever it is, there's a real, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, temptation to become discouraged by a lot of different ways, right? So the point is, don't be discouraged. Keep clinging to Christ. Keep moving forward. Christ is going to bring us across the finish line, okay? Because Christ has been there in the wilderness. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ, Lord. What a what a what an example we have. What a brother that we have in Christ. What a what a faithful son that you have, obviously, Lord. And so we're 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 at awe this afternoon. And, and Father, we pray that you'd help us to be more in awe as, as we go through things in our own lives. So we go through trials in our own lives. These these uh, these these wilderness experiences and, and trials. At the hand of Satan, Father, we thank you that you are in control, and that just like you were with your servant Job and all the trials that he went through, and yet you brought him through them all, Lord, we thank you that you can ne- you'll never give us more than we can handle. You'll never give us more than 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 what is um, than what's good for us, Lord. We know that that you're ultimately sovereign. You are sovereign in, in what we need to go through, Lord. So give us strength when we go through that, Lord. Help us to. Uh, not be naive about the enemy, to be very aware of him. And give us grace, Lord. Give us grace not to be an easy prey for the enemy, Lord. Help us to fight. Help us to stand firm. Help us to use the means of grace that you've given us to do so, Lord. Thank you for the means of grace. Thank you for prayer. Thank you for the word. Thank you for the, the sacraments. Thank you for thank you for the, the, the word being preached. Thank you for the gathering of the saints, Lord. Thank you for your people. So, Lord, be with your people today. Be with your people who are here. Be with those who are not here. Give us grace, Lord. We need your help this this week. We need your help this afternoon. So help us now. Go before us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.